You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. What if you could own a rental property and the rents are paid by the U.S. government? That has been known as Section 8 housing. And on today's show, we're going to bring in an expert who does just that. I'm Kathy Fetke and welcome to The Real Well Show. Our guest today is from Chicago, and his company has been investing in the South Side in areas that are gentrifying, where there's a lot of new business coming in, yet the properties are still pretty inexpensive and the rents are high. So there's a lot of cash flow and at the same time, appreciation. And an additional bonus, the program really helps people get back up on their feet because there's government subsidized rent vouchers that help these families pay the rent. Uh, So we're going to find out all about that with our guest today, John. So John, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I really look forward to hearing, first of all, how things are going in Chicago during these interesting times, and also how your rental properties are performing. So let's start with the overall picture. How is Chicago doing? I mean, we see all kinds of headlines about violence and, you know, statues tumbling and so forth. I mean, have things changed from your experience? What's going well, on? so Kathy, first off, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate you inviting me to join your podcast here, um, and I'm looking forward to it today. Things in Chicago are, are pretty good right now. Um, we definitely had some uh, some interesting times there. There was really one rough week, particularly, where there was a lot of uh, protesting. Started out downtown in the River North area, which is actually where I live, and there was a lot of vandalism and, and different things going on, but uh, it quelled mostly, and then the next day there were some you know, looting in some other areas and it spread out. But over the next couple of days, it seemed to calm down a lot. And really, we haven't seen, other than a few limited incidents, things have been fairly peaceful everywhere. And, you know, there was a little issue with some, a, a statue being attempted to be toppled last uh, Friday night, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, we've been, we've been pretty stable. As far as rental properties, our portfolio has been performing very well and our client portfolios have performed very well. Really, like as you said, thanks a lot to the Section 8 program that we participate in very heavily and have always focused on as a a pillar of our business and for the stability and for all those things that you mentioned. And it's really come in handy now and proven to be like the bellwether that we thought it would be because it kind of helps weather tough times like it does for the tenants every day. But now for even the landlords who, you know, in other situations have not been so fortunate. Yeah, you know, I... I'm always cautious these days because I've gone through so many different kinds of things that have been challenging over the years. And um, sometimes I've seen in some cities that uh, the Section 8 program either ran out or it changed and people who bought a property specifically for uh, Section 8 rentals, suddenly they didn't have that anymore and it went to market rents and they they weren't able to get as much as they thought they could and they weren't, weren't able to actually even get a tenant. That they felt comfortable with. So, because it was in neighborhoods that didn't have good property management mm-hmm. and so forth. So, as you know, I've been very cautious, even with, with your program, right, even though you guys right. have so much experience. But literally, over the last couple of months, it's moved, it's elevated to a whole new level of desire, at least within our membership, of people really wanting this government paid housing. So, it's interesting to hear from you that it has indeed worked out because the government's paying, even if people lost their jobs, right? Right. So, so number one on that, I do, I do understand what you mean. And I have heard similar stories that in some municipalities, and I think in a lot of cases, really in smaller towns where there might not be as established of a a housing authority, and it's a little more, 
it's not as large of an organization that's handling it, what's called the local housing administrator. Really all funds for Section 8 are coming from HUD, the you know Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington. And so I think you know, we work locally in Chicago with the Chicago Housing Authority and then in the Housing Authority of Cook County, which is, you know, Chicago's in Cook County, but Housing Authority of Cook County covers the suburbs and the CHA has a special contract for the city of Chicago. Those two organizations are funded, I think, 80 to 90 percent of their budgets are coming directly from HUD. So this is federal funds. You know, they're not particularly exposed to the local or state governments, both of which are things that people are concerned about in Chicago and Illinois. but these budgets get passed every year and you know that that hud budget for the housing choice voucher program and really other section 8 related programs stays very stable it tweaks up a little bit or tweaks down a little bit but it generally is pretty stable and there's a lot of support bipartisan support for the continuance of you know housing support because housing is such a fundamental need for you know all humans and residents of the united states and so in chicago it's been a very stable program over the years Back in the day, it was more focused on what's called project-based housing, which would be housing that the housing authority actually owned and put in their their own tenants or people who had voucher support. But now they've shifted towards this housing choice voucher program, which allows a tenant and a landlord who's really a private market landlord to apply together to make use of that tenant's voucher in their private residence. And so that's what we focus on is those, it it creates a mobile situation. It allows the housing authority to retain more control. And if there becomes a problem with a unit from the landlord's perspective or the tenant's perspective, the housing authority can just terminate the contract and they kind of, it ceases to exist. And then the tenant moves out and, you know, everything can get back on track. The tenant can move somewhere else if there's a problem with the property or the landlord can get a new tenant, just like they would with any other one, like an eviction. the majority of the time, we're not going that route of evictions, but it really protects the housing authority, mostly because if there's a problem landlord or in the situations in the past, those public housing buildings, the projects had gotten overrun with certain criminal activity and it was too hard for them to patrol. These are the kind of things you're reading about in you know, some of the old movies that you'll see on History Channel, where they're talking about what was going on in the 80s and early 90s. And that's why those projects were torn down in Chicago. And so as they've moved toward this voucher-based program, which is this housing choice voucher, there's roughly 50,000 families in the city of Chicago that have that voucher. And those are vouchers that can be used at any residence that's for rent. And so we just apply, we go through an inspection process, and then we get a rent determination from the CHA, and we move the tenant in. And then it's pretty much like a typical lease. So I know I interviewed someone from Baltimore and they mm-hmm. have a wait list of people trying to to get on to the program for obvious reasons. I mean, who wouldn't want the government to help pay your rent? Uh, is that the same in Chicago? Is there is it difficult to, to get a voucher? Yes, absolutely. Um, the wait list itself, which is closed, has 50,000 more people on it oh, wow. uh, waiting for the voucher. And the wait list itself only opens every couple of years just simply to get on the wait list. So what does it take to lose the voucher? I mean, what do you have well, to do wrong to lose it? Um, the, you know, the positive reason would be um, the, the income goes up, the family income goes up by a, an amount sufficient to support reasonably affordable housing for that family. And basically what happens is if the tenant's income goes up, they redetermine the rent. And if they have zero portion or, or a zero subsidized portion for a period of, I believe, 12 months, then the voucher would be removed. 
Um, but then you can also be kicked out of the program for compliance reasons, which would be, you know, failure to comply with leases more than once, getting evicted more than once, and things like that. So basically, one of the reasons that we really like the program is you, you basically have a third party who's helping you to enforce your lease. We as the landlord are primarily responsible for enforcing the contract as, you know, as it states on the lease, but we do have some additional leverage in cases where there's tenant abuse of the property or something like that, where we can, we report them to the, what's called the compliance enforcement department at the Chicago housing authority. And then they'll, you know, the tenant's caseworker would call them and say, you know, Hey, we're getting a report that, you know, you're not caring for the unit property, whether it's cleanliness or something like that, or you're not paying your portion. Um, and it's kind of a warning from somebody else. And, and the majority of the time, the tenants realize that, you know, that's a bad sign. The, they understand the value of that voucher as well, too, and uh, mm-hmm. don't want to lose it. And so for that reason, it creates a, a, a more stable situation in a lower income mm-hmm. environment that we operate in. Yeah, I would, I would think so. I mean, have you experienced that or, or are, more, are most people taking care of their properties because they don't want to lose the voucher? Yeah, the majority are taking care of the properties just like anybody else. But you know, there's there's bad market rate tenants, there's bad Section 8 tenants. Really, it's all about screening to begin with. And, mm-hmm. you know, we pride ourselves in having a good screening process. We screen all the tenants just like we would anywhere else, according to fair housing rules. But then we also do um, a home visit, which is our, you know, kind of our little trick of the trade, um, where we like to go visit the tenant's current residence uh, when we have a new applicant for a unit to go see how they're maintaining and, and uh, keeping their current unit clean. You know, do they know that you're coming to do that? Uh, we try to make it a little bit of a surprise, like there'll be an excuse <laughs> to come by and, and get a form signed or something like that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can prepare for something like that. And of course, you can fake it like you can fake anything else. But mm-hmm. the reality is, you can tell whether something was kind of just straightened up a little bit, or if, you know, we're looking for tenants who have pride of, uh, like pride of ownership, but basically, you know, are proud to keep their home nice um, when they have visitors over. And, uh, you know, keep it clean and, and tidy. And, and that's what's important to us. Interesting. So let's kind of walk us through it. Let's say I wanted to buy a property from you guys. You, you target certain neighborhoods that you think will attract a, a good tenant and uh, where there'll be good cash flow. You find the building, you renovate it. You also have property management in place. So if I were an investor coming to you, how would that process work? How would I pick the property? And first of all, like, how would you pick the property? Well, we pick properties based on, uh, we make sure that we're buying, when we're buying homes, we try to buy at least three bedroom houses. Um, we think two bedroom rentals are a big mistake. Um, the mm. rents are too low to sustain, you know, the maintenance and the upkeep of that home going forward. Um, and so we, we look for three, four or five bedroom houses. And then we look for areas where the rental rates are higher. And, and we know all the, the, especially the section eight comps in the area where we're seeing good rent determinations, which means there's good competitive market comps in the area. And so those are the areas that we're, we're seeking to continue to buy properties in and expand our portfolio. When a buyer buys a property, we often sell a lot of properties with tenants in them already and they're occupied. Whereas I think a lot of the, the property providers that you work with, many sell vacant properties and then they go through that initial lease up process. We prefer to sell properties that are occupied for two reasons. One, while we own them, the cost of carry is is negated and you know we cash flow it just like anybody else and two um we think it's a better experience for the buyer um, because they're buying a property with a uh, cash flow on day one and there's no open vacancy there's no leasing fee at the beginning and anything like that and so 
you know, they buy a property and, you know, they get a rent credit on day one at the closing and they start collecting the rent on the first of the month. We will tell the purchaser of the property whether or not the tenant is a market rate tenant or a section eight tenant. Um, and they'll understand what the, uh, the current share is between the, uh, the housing authority and the tenant's portion. But that can fluctuate at any time. And so there's no guarantees that if a tenant right now doesn't have any income and is fully subsidized, that, you know, that may change. Their income may increase, their income may decrease going forward or for short periods of time. And, you know, the great part of the program, what we really like about it is that it's a flexible subsidy intended to provide a supplement so that the tenant is only spending approximately 30% of their income on housing and living expenses. So for those housing related expenses. And so if as a buyer, I would, I would get an inspection and see what kind of condition the property's in. How recently would have you, would the renovation have taken place if it's already renovated? The majority are like within the past year to two years. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, more and more, many of them are being sold right now, but occasionally we have properties and clients who are reselling certain properties as well too. Um, I see. But we're rehabbing new properties all the time, but we just, our process is we renovate a property, we immediately put it on the rental market, we tenant it. There's a lot of demand for these rental properties. And so we see it as a, a detriment to leave it vacant. It's just much more important to us to get a, get a good tenant in there. And when we have mm-hmm. a good tenant applicant, you know, we want to let them lease up the best houses and get those houses sold. Um, and we also think it it reduces the uncertainty, whereas sometimes in this rent-ready space, you'll see people projecting rents and saying things about what the rent might be or should be or could be. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a bit of hope in that. I think the majority of people are honest when they're doing that, but you just don't know. And we don't like having disappointed clients. And so when I can show that there's a lease and a ledger that show you what the tenant and the, the housing authority are paying, um, there's no ambiguity about what the, the rental income is going to be. So Section 8, it tends to be lower income areas because even if they have a voucher, that voucher is only going to cover whatever, it's not going to cover the full rent. It just covers whatever the amount of money they got from the go- from the government is. So I'm assuming- No, it's, yeah, I, sorry to interrupt, work? but uh, it's actually a bit different than that. Okay. Um, the voucher has a maximum amount based on the bed bath count or really the bed bed count um, for the voucher. So if, a, if the family size warrants a three bedroom voucher, that means that they have, you know, either a spouse and or dependents um, that would, you know, necessitate having three bedrooms or four bedrooms. That voucher will have a, a rent maximum for that area. And so for a three bedroom, it's approximately $1,500 a month. And for a four bedroom, it's roughly $1,675 a month. Wow, that's really um, high. It is. Um, there's an adjustment for some other living expenses like the utility mm-hmm. bills, but you know the rents are very good here. And so, um, so what what that is is the maximum amount. Then when they go through the rent determination, they use the comps, they calculate what the the, the proper rent should be on this property, and then they say, okay, we can pay you fourteen eighty seven a month or something like that. And we either accept or we push back and, you know, appeal it. And we might submit comps and, and say, no, we actually think it should be a little bit higher. You know, here's why. And we submit those comps. They review in 48 hours, they come back to us. And then they tell us what their kind of final offer is. When we accept, then a couple of weeks later, we'll find out the breakdown between the tenant portion and the government portion. But all that really means is that's for that first month. At any given time, the tenant may have a change of income. And they're obligated to go notify the housing authority immediately. And then the housing authority will make a portion change, uh, what they call an interim 
housing assistance payment where they adjust the portion temporarily to the new income levels. And it's always based on the tenant's portion being 30% of their current income, less some adjustments for, you know, dependents and allowances and things like that. Okay. So they're in, so they can basically choose the neighborhood they would want to live in? Correct. That's, that's the concept. It's called a housing choice voucher. Well, um, okay. <laughs> the name answers yeah. my question. Yeah. So would these areas be lower income areas and therefore higher? I mean, sometimes that means higher crime. I mean, is that something you're experiencing? Well, so the the majority of the neighborhoods that we're operating in definitely are uh, lower income areas, but they are, are developing and, and many are gentrifying as well. What you will see also, the CHA has a program called the CHA, they call it the opportunity area or the mobility area. And what they're trying to do is encourage landlords in higher price markets because of those rent caps. Basically, if you go to a very high price neighborhood, the CHA rent is no longer comparable to the market rent. And so if you go downtown and the market rent for, you know, say a two bedroom apartment is $2,000 a month and the rent subs uh, or the CHA rent maximum is like $1,250 a month. Obviously, the landlord is never going to rent to that tenant because they know that they're only going to get $1,200 when they need to get 2000 to compare to their neighbor. So the CHA has a program called the mobility area, which allows them to, in certain zip codes, to adjust the rent maximums up to 150% of the normal rent maximum. And the goal of that program is to encourage more economic diversity and allow the tenants with vouchers to move into some more desirable neighborhoods and, you know, create more mixed income scenarios, which leads to, you know, better job opportunities and all the, all the things that come along with, um, you know, creating that mix. So, but as a, as a landlord, is it still important? Obviously, I I think I'm going to answer my own question here. Is it still important to really look at the neighborhood and are you buying a property that's in the path of progress, that's gentrifying, as you said, that has low crime, um, that there's something positive happening. I know you guys yeah. pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah, we absolutely do. You know, that is, those things are all correlated to those rental rates where we're seeing, you know, the, the higher rent determination. So even though there's a rent maximum for the bedroom count, we are still looking for the neighborhoods where there's, there's more value and likely to be, you know, some additional appreciation there too. What are some of the things that are happening in these different neighborhoods? I, I know there's been talk about the Obama library, yep. expansion of the the university. I mean, are there more jobs, businesses coming in? What, what What's happening in these neighborhoods? Yeah, I would say like a lot of places in the country, um, Amazon seems to be the biggest employer going <laughs> right. around and, and really around, particularly around the near South suburbs. They're building warehouse after warehouse after warehouse across a lot of area that was long since, I wouldn't say deserted, but basically um, somewhat run down towns that now have some big commercial development going to it and industrial stuff like that. And so wow. there is a lot of hiring going on. And so a fair amount of our tenants do work for Amazon in some capacity or have over time, you know, because they are a, um, a bit of a more entry level employer, but it's good stable work and good fair wages. They're an employer. Um, as for things that are being built in the area that are growing here, we do have that Obama presidential center that's going to be built. That's in the, a park in the Woodlawn area. They're supposed to finally do this golf course renovation of uh, two park district courses that are pretty close to that, that Woodlawn area. They're in an area called Jackson Park. They're renovating this Jackson Park golf course and South Shore Country Club, which are both two city-owned facilities. And they're going to be renovated with a Tiger Woods design 
and you know they're going to transform it into a PGA Tour caliber course with a banquet facility and things like that that should have hospitality jobs and other things to uh, you know attract both uh, business and you know higher end hospitality events for weddings and things like that. So those are both in the uh, the, the southeast side, just south of Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is. That area really is booming. You know, we're seeing a lot of activity. There's there's massive demand for multifamily buildings down in that area um, because they are close to the lake. They're relatively close to that presidential center. Um, are you guys, are you able to find those for investors and, and help them with renovation? The multifamily? The, the multifamily. Yeah, we, we're pretty active in that space as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're renovating some large buildings. We'll be delivering uh, an 18-unit building and a 10-unit building here this summer. We've got a 70-unit building that we just started construction on, and that one's that's down in that South Shore neighborhood as well, too. And how, how are the, is there any difference between a one to four unit and a commercial building like that in terms of taxes? And, and you know, we've, we, we see some of the property taxes increasing in, in Chicago. Does that affect commercial? Um, it, what you don't want is actually office and retail. Not, well, there might, well I wouldn't want it right now, especially given yeah, what's going anyway, on. Right. But, <laughs> um, but the tax rates on that type of commercial are very different in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, or in Cook County, the tax rates are, it's a complicated system, but effectively the tax rates are 150% higher on industrial uh, retail and office. Um, but if it, if the property is mixed use or is a pure residential building, then, you know, it's basically what they call ta- taxed at a 10% assessed value versus the commercial stuff is taxed at a 25% assessed value. So that just okay, leads so- to very roughly on a residential property valued fairly in Chicago, you see roughly 1.75 to 2% annual property taxes versus the value of the property, assuming kind of the, the assessor knows the same value that we know, and if everything's there and it's a fully stabilized property. So that's kind of what I use as a rule of thumb uh, for what I expect the property taxes to be. And for a commercial property, like an industrial or an office or retail property, you would see that number be closer to 4 to 5%. Ah, well. It would be really high. Another way to kill retail and and let Amazon take over the world. (laughs) But it's been that way for a long time. And so, um, you know, those properties are priced knowing that's the tax rate. But the residential rates um, in Chicago, while it's a relatively high tax environment, um, on a percentage basis, it's quite, you know, reasonable. And with the rental rates that we see and the cap rates that we're seeing, as a percentage of your total expenses, it's actually very manageable. And so we really like it where those South suburbs are where sometimes uh, you see somewhat higher taxes because they're municipalities that don't have any other means to, to tax and, and to generate a lot of income. And so they have to hit the property tax roll harder. Whereas in the city of Chicago, there's, you know, there's so much retail activity and things like that at restaurants, entertainment and corporate taxes that uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money to go around basically with all the businesses and all the, the activity we see with tourists and everything. Fascinating. All right. Well, uh, it sounds like if you pick the right property in the right neighborhood, you can cash flow pretty tremendously with the help of the U.S. government in an area where you would potentially see appreciation as it uh, gentrifies. I mean, are you are you seeing that? Yeah, we are. We're actually um, we're seeing coming out of this the the lockdowns and and people going back to work, or even before people are going back to work, we're seeing a massive amount of activity uh, on the brokerage side right now, especially in this lower price space. So pretty much any single family home under 300,000 in the Chicago area, we're selling in a week or two. We're putting things on the market and seeing showings like crazy. 
we're seeing a lot of investor demand, but really in the, the owner-occupant demand, which we've found for some of our clients who are reselling properties, they're selling single families and two flats to owner-occupant buyers and you know, seeing really nice appreciation over what they paid a few years ago. So it's pretty impressive and uh, Very good exciting. to see that, you know, I guess in some ways we regret, maybe we undersold some properties over the years, but it, you know, it makes us happy that we have, we have happy clients who you know, got a good return and uh, made some good rental income, now made a capital gain, and uh, hopefully they'll be back for more soon. Wonderful. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on The Real Well Show and, and sharing your expertise on Chicago and the Section 8 market. Absolutely, Kathy. Thanks so much. Uh, it's good seeing you again and hope to do it in person again soon. Oh, that'll be awesome. (laughs) And uh, and if uh, any of our listeners would like to get in touch with John, you can go to our website at realwealthshow.com. You join, it's free, and then you'll get access to their webpage on our site that will feature different properties that they're showing and kind of background on them and everything. And again, it's free to join. So realwealthshow.com. All right, John, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I hope, again, I hope to see you soon. All right, Kathy, good night. Thanks. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Well Show. Look forward to seeing you next time. You can listen to this again or read the transcript at realwealthshow.com.